What's up, jabronis? Welcome back to Two on Five, your one-stop shop for all your top five lists. I'm Drake. And I'm Brett. And today, we're here to talk to you about one of our favorite things. We're going to go over our top five books. So books are a big part of our lives. Uh, We both are avid readers. We enjoy it. We enjoy watching that medium evolve into something else, whether that be, uh, you know, adapting it to film, you know, or coming over for like a graphic novel crossover. But uh, books are a big part of our lives. And so we've got some pretty distinct favorites in our lists. Yeah. Um, One one of the things that's been that's interesting is this is, I think, maybe our first list making time where we don't have any duplicates. So I am legit excited about your list because there is stuff that I have not ever heard of. I yeah yeah there's there's definitely one on yours I I'm curious about so mm-hmm. we're we're just gonna jump on in uh my number five is it's a book called Under the Banner of Heaven it's by John Krakauer um John Krakauer writes some of the best nonfiction I've ever read and he's the guy who wrote Into the Wild he's the guy who wrote Into Thin Air and then he wrote this book um basically uh he was started researching it when he heard about this these two brothers who killed their other brother's wife and baby girl and said that god did it god told them to do it and where that led him was this basically research into uh the mormon church and the fundamentalist mormon church and the book itself is just it's incredibly well researched and what it does is it it's almost split into two different narratives where one narrative goes back to the founding of the mormon church and like it's basically that south park episode but not but you know serious and then the other half of the book is following back in the like the late 80s these uh these fundamentalist mormons and what's what's happened there and basically the big split in the church is polygamy mm-hmm. and it's just um i read this in college and it was one of the first books that really got me into nonfiction and how gripping that can be and it shed a light on something i knew absolutely nothing about i didn't really know anything about mormonism i didn't really know anything at all about fundamentalist mormonism and then what was wild is after i read that then all the stuff about the raids on the fundamentalist fundamentalist mormon uh camps and stuff coming onto the news and i was like holy cow i can really connect that anyway i think it's a great book and like i said it's crack hour so it's really well written i was not familiar with this book uh but if y'all know me and where i'm from you you know uh you know mm-hmm. i'm not going to dive too much into it but uh you know obviously the mormon church has a uh big presence here in the keokuk area and uh you know so there's a lot of stuff i'm looking forward to reading this book because it's it's something that i think can help supplement my current knowledge of you know the lds mm-hmm. um And it's really interesting, the story that this book follows, because there is a very similar story in the news right now. Um, You know, we're in March of 2020, and uh, 
very similar case that started in, I think, Washington State and has now moved to Hawaii. But basically, you know, this idea that there was a divine mandate uh, for who lives and who doesn't. So uh, we'll probably be seeing some more of this stuff hit the media real soon. But uh, I'm very excited to read this book, especially as a uh, I'm glad you included some nonfiction on your list. Uh, So for me, going the other way, we are going to dive right back into the world of fiction. Uh, My number five is a book from the author Max Brooks. If you're familiar with Max Brooks, that's Mel Brooks's kid. Uh, He wrote a book called World War Z. And this book was adapted into a film. But World War Z is my number five. Um, He also did another book called like the Zombie Survival Guide. Mm -hmm. And a similar thing. Basically, World War Z is the idea that zombies take over the, the world. And this book is a collection of accounts from doctors, researchers, as well as uh, military experts and politicians on how they tried to fight the war against zombies. And I I think it's really well done just because of the way it takes bits and pieces from all over the world and basically tells the story as a worldwide story. Um, I also think it does a really good job of showing how traditional systems work and how they don't work. Um, You know, this is a really good example of people in positions of power that think they have everything figured out until they get punched in the mouth. And, you know, so I I think it does a really good job of showing things on a macro scale and then also some really personal relations on a micro scale, you know, how people survive in a situation like that. So um, it's one of those things that when you listen or read to interviews from Max Brooks, he's not joking. And I'm not sure if that's for real or if this is some big long con. And I don't know if we'll ever know because it's Mel Brooks's kid. And Mm -hmm. so no matter how serious he is, I'm not sure that I can trust him. You know, like I, the punchline is coming somewhere, but, uh, he takes this, uh, very serious approach to this issue. And for me, it's a fun thought exercise that I enjoy. Oh yeah. Like I think that the book itself is just super, super clever. The, the idea of basically making the, all these different oral histories yeah, uh, come in and then, and that, and that's where you get your like picture of, wow, okay, this is, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. And some of the, like, if I remember correctly, cause it's been a little bit since I read it, but some of them are so micro like yes some of the stories are like very very just this happened to me and it and there's almost nothing to the story but that's kind of where you start getting your uh the scope of it like right the layers like yeah you get this thing where it happened to just these little these these regular people and i don't know it was I thought it was really interesting. Wild as hell that they uh, adapted that into the movie that they did. Um, yeah, the movie doesn't do it justice. Like, it's a fine, it's a fine zombie movie. It's fine. Yeah, like, um, it also has Brad Pitt for whatever reason. Um, yeah, you know, and that's not a knock on him. It's just kind of a it, the way they adapted that book. They didn't do it shot for shot, page for page, you know, they kind of turned it into its own thing, which is fine. But if you get a chance, well, I mean, it's an book, action movie. It is. 
the book is a completely different experience. Uh, moving on to my number four, and this is another one that was adapted to a pretty popular film. But my number four is A Clockwork Orange from Anthony Burgess. And I struggled with this one because it's been a favorite of mine for 20 years now. Um, and so I kind of had to do a temperature check on myself to make sure that I was not still a, like a 15 year old edgelord that was just <laughs> happy with the idea of violence. Ah, oh, man, this ain't fight club. You're fine. <laughs> okay. Um, and you know, the film is a really impressive work of art. Um, it's Stanley Kubrick doing some of the stuff that he does best. Um, but what I really appreciate about the book is not only this lesson that it's trying to teach, but the separate language that exists inside this book. Um, you know, they created an entire vocabulary for commonplace words, and they didn't give you a dictionary or a thesaurus to reference. Like, you just had to figure this out through the context of the story. And so... You know, you may read for half a page while your mind is thinking about what does plotches mean? What the mm -hmm. fuck does plotches mean? And then you're like, oh, OK, he's talking about his shoulders, you know, like something as mundane as a body part. Um, but it was something that really kept my mind engaged throughout the reading. And even on, you know, additional readings afterwards, I enjoy picking up the context, you know, as I go through. And so for me, it's just a really impressive work that, you know, could have told the story in English and would have been just fine. But to add this extra layer of vocabulary was uh, what made this book fun for me. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that makes the book really memorable and stand out. Like, uh, the movie is like in a lot of ways, almost its own thing, just because it's such a visual thing and mm -hmm. Kubrick's able to do whatever he wants with it. Whereas with that book, if it was just, I feel like it, it would feel, it would be a lot less artful if it didn't have that. Like I, yeah. I totally, I totally agree with you there. Um, I think the really interesting thing about this is the publication history uh, from Burgess's from the UK and it was published originally over there when it was published in the United States, it was published with it's without the last chapter. Right. 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 And, uh, I don't really want to give too much away. I feel like, uh, I mean, first of all, it's an old book. So like, I don't think we're super spoiling it, but on the other hand, it's important. So, um, if you, but, but if you've read a book, if you normally, normally if you've removed the last chapter, it's going to change it somewhat and with this book if you take the last chapter away it completely changes it to something i feel like that's a lot less impactful mm -hmm. uh and like that was interesting because for to me because that was the first time i'd ever come across something like that where you where you actually hear about uh these different ideas going into just the publication of the book and i mean the copy of it i read literally said on it it's been restored. We've added the chapter. Like it became marketing, which is right. wild. Yeah. When I first read this book, I was a sophomore in high school and it was without the final chapter. And so I didn't get my hands on the final chapter until 
in I was in college, you know, it was almost another, you know, six, eight years um, before I got to read that um, six, mm-hmm. six or eight is wrong, guys. I, I finished high school on time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was some years later. And so, you know, to to reflect on that afterwards, you know, gave me a different perspective of how that story ends. And so I'm glad they did it. Uh, I'm glad they gave us the work in its entirety. And if you haven't read it, check it out, you know, brace yourselves, but check it out. Yeah. It's definitely a book where you need to keep going and like, it almost doesn't matter where you are in it. Like, I feel like you're going to be confused. And the answer is keep going because it starts to make sense. The more you just immerse yourself in that weirdo language. So, yep. Um, okay, well, my number four is, we're back to nonfiction again. This is a book that's a series of essays. It's written by uh, Chuck Klosterman. It's called Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. Uh, this book, I have probably bought four copies of because I lend it to people and then I never get it back, which is a little annoying, but I get it. Uh, Chuck Klosterman is... He's the writer, like, if I was going to be a writer, I would want to be this dude. Yes. I mean, he first of all, he's kind of had the career, I think, that would be amazing to have. Like, he wrote for Spin when Spin mattered. And then he wrote for ESPN for a while. He helped found Grantland. And he was the ethicist for the New York Times. Like, he's just done all this really interesting writing. And then his books, um, you know, he's written a, no- a couple novels. He's... He's collected works, but this is where this was one of my first exposures to a a book of collected essays. And these essays are centered around pop culture and low culture. Like I think the subtitle of the book is actually a low culture manifesto. Yes. Like he doesn't, he doesn't take it too seriously. And I mean, the, like he has essays about the Sims and Saved by the Bell and just these things that are very much a part of your life that you might not have put any extra effort into thinking about. Um, probably my favorite essay is uh, about uh, fake love songs. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the first one in the book. And he is just, he's going off about how like fucking Coldplay sucks and he got blown off by this girl because she wanted to go see Coldplay and how all they do is they just make fake love songs. And I think he ties it into John Cusack at, yeah. at one point. Like it's, it's just, it's very much how I feel like I want to discuss culture by making random connections and thinking about things that aren't always talked about. And anyway, Klosterman has continued writing and I, still love his books and whatever, but this is the one that kind of started me down that path. I am really glad that you included this on the list. Um, I feel like Klosterman, um, as well as probably Shea Serrano, especially in recent years has really helped. They've both really helped guide our conversations about culture Mm -hmm. and, you know, have provided us with some fun thought exercises to, you know, work out. And yeah, I I think his essays are where you get the most of his personality. 
which, oh, sure. you know, is, is kind of different because a lot of people, when they, when they go to essays, they try and be, uh, as objective as possible. And I really feel like he lets his personality through in the writing and it's a ton of fun. Um, kind of reminds you to laugh at the, the shit that we have to go through on a daily basis. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, it's fun because he does communicate like a regular dude, but he's been in some of the coolest jobs, like their dream jobs for us. And mm-hmm. so it's really fun to get that voice and that perspective from somebody that has got to do a lot of the cool shit that we dreamt about growing up. Yeah. I just, it's just a book that I feel like I can recommend it to almost anyone. Yeah. Like almost any other book, like there's going to be some qualifications and like there'll be people that won't want to read that or whatever, but I promise that there's something in this book for almost anyone. Like there will be something that you'll crack up about or connect to. So um, moving on, we're going to finally get to some fiction for me. Uh, then my number three is Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Uh, this book, I remember when I read it, it was fifth grade. Um, I, that was, I'm pretty sure it was the same year the movie came out because the copy that I had was the paperback with the movie logo on it. Um, it was one of my, one of the first like truly adult novels I read. Like I, I'd read some other stuff like, I, mean, I but you know, I'd read the Hobbit and things like that, but this was one of the first ones where I went to the bookstore. I had to go to the adult fiction and I picked that one out and I wanted it. And lucky for me, it was fucking awesome. Like it, it also taught me a little bit about um, adaptation and how like um, the, that novel is very much a lot like the movie and also diverges quite, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first times I was where I was like, Oh, this is a novel. This is not the novelization of the movie. And that was kind of a cool thing. Um, introduced me to Crichton who I've read so much Crichton. Um, and it's just a great book. Like, it, like, there's a reason the movie's so good. It, it had a really good basis to start off of. So. Uh, first of all, I want to circle back and the image in my head of fifth grade Brett going to the bookstore and basically saying, I'm a grown ass man. Please give me my copy of Jurassic Park <laughs> is uh, thank you for that. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Walden I, books. <laughs> I, I feel like this this book was most folks, especially in our generation, like this was the jumping off point to get into Crichton. And he's got a ton of other great work. I mean, other stuff that's been made into films, but just some really cool, uh, fun, smart writing, especially for somebody that does write a bunch of books. I mean, it's kind of like the, uh, there's a million other writers, you know, the Tom Clancy's, the Clive Cussler's, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he's another one of those that I don't know if syndicated is the right word, but, you know, he cranks out <laughs> a lot of shit. Uh, yeah, he did. He definitely did. And so, yeah, I think this was one that it, it is significantly different from the film, but it, it's something that can be appreciated, too. Like, I, I don't think that either one is less than the other. 
And that's, that's something normally when you compare books and the film adaptations, you pick one, you decide Mm -hmm. that this one is, you know, the book is way better or wow, the movie really went over the top and, you know, enriched the story. This is one where I think they both stand on their own. And, you know, I think that's a testament to both pieces of art, like, you know, how good they are. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I, I think what's really interesting is um, I actually reread Jurassic Park, I want to say last year, and it was interesting really picking like what, like going through and seeing what they decided to keep for the movie and what they, what they cut. And I mean, it, it, it was just very much, well, if they kept some of the stuff from the book, it would have been a lot less commercial and mm-hmm. I, I actually appreciate the fact that Crichton was not afraid to do that. Like, you know, but I mean, Crichton, like the idea that Crichton was a commercial. I mean, this is the guy who made every book ever that was adapted. And then he like, you know, made ER. So yeah, whatever, like moving on. Yep. So my number three uh, is kind of a special pick. It is from a local writer here in my neck of the woods. Uh, the book is called The Weller from Adam Whitlich. Um, basically the premise is we are in a nuclear wasteland and a traveler known as the Weller, uh, his name's Matt Freeborn has to go around and collect the only resource that matters in a post-apocalyptic world. And that's water. Um, what's cool about it. I mean, it's very much the setting. It kind of reminds you of the first fallout games. You know, where you have radioactive uh, rodents and insects and things that uh, Matt is fighting. Uh, Also reminds you a bit of the Road Warrior, you know, as you have rival gangs trying to collect your water and also steal any of your other resources. But what's really fun about it is it takes place in eastern Iowa and then travel. He travels west into Nebraska. And so... For those of us that are familiar with that country, we know how desolate it can be anyways. Mm-hmm. And then to see it turned up a notch in a post-apocalyptic wasteland where you're searching for the one thing you need to you need to survive is a lot of fun. Um, Adam's got a ton of books out there, but this one is by far my favorite. The sequel is coming out here relatively soon, and I'm looking forward to it. But... That's that's what makes it special for me is the idea that there are local landmarks that I can, you know, place on it and also understand the feelings of desolation. And also, I'm going to be honest, guys, I've, I've seen a truck full of rednecks before and they may have well been radioactive zombies, you know, like for <laughs> for those of us that don't necessarily fit into that culture you know, sometimes those guys can be, uh, threatening anyways, or at least appear threatening. And so it it was one of those things kind of turned up a notch, uh, based on the setting, but really enjoyable and uh, shout out to Adam for producing such good content. No, that sounds cool. Like, uh, I mean, I am always interested in post-apocalyptic stuff. That's not zombie based. Yeah. For the most part. 
So, and like, I'd never heard of this one. So this would be something I'll probably track down for sure. Um, and, and, uh, just to comment, um, I love Nebraska, but you know, once you get past Lincoln, woof. Yeah. <laughs> woof. I, I drove to North Platte one time and <laughs> that was enough for me. And it was yeah. scary as shit in the daylight without, you know, radioactive rats and cockroaches and shit. Um, just a big cowboy straddling an I-80. Mm-hmm. Yep. So moving on to my number two, uh, it is a collection of essays. And this is one, like Brett, I have had multiple copies of this book. And I have loaned them out. Uh, one in particular I loaned out and did not get back. And then I gifted it once because there's so much good shit in here that I felt this person needed to read it. And, uh, that is the outlaw Bible of American literature. Uh, primary editor was Alan Kaufman, but this is my favorite collection of counterculture essays. And, you know, basically anything from, you know, the world of music, uh, especially, you know, underground punk, um, hip hop, as well as some great authors, uh, you know, William Burroughs, Hunter S. Thompson, Ken Kesey, like there's just so much shit in here. Um, and then you get stuff from Tupac and Snoop and Lou Reed, uh, Iceberg Slim, you know, like just so much great stuff. And it's, this is one unlike Klosterman's book. Like you have to be a certain kind of person to want to read this book. Um, obviously some of the entries can be pretty jarring. Um, mm -hmm. But it's one of those that to have all that stuff put in a collection for me was great because it's, it felt like a lifetime of counterculture that it would have taken me forever to go around and find all of these things if I were just searching on my own. And so to have it in a 1200 page collection was perfect. I mean, it really is kind of a Bible. Uh, they have several other collections like this. There's the outlaw Bible of American poetry, uh, outlaw Bible of American essays, and they're good, but the American literature one really struck with me. And I, I think it was because of the entries, you know, having stuff from James Brown discussing his drug, uh, drug addiction, um, you know, Snoop Dogg basically explaining the war on drugs, you know, um, and the way he puts it was, uh, it was something I'd never heard before and it stuck with me. And so it's one of those that if you're, if you're like me, and if, if you don't know, you're probably not. If if you're like me, um, go and check this out because there's this will send you down a million different rabbit holes to other artists, other things to check out. And so it's it's a great jumping off point to discover a million other great things. What's your favorite thing in it? Um, I got to say the Snoop Dogg essay is really something that that stuck with me and. I think part of it was also seeing a, a serious side of Snoop, you know, which is something that we sure. don't, we don't get a lot. Um, and, and I don't mean that he's not a serious artist. He's just, he seems to be having fun most of the time. And so this mm -hmm. was one of those times that he really broke it down and basically 
explained especially the the black experience in the war on drugs and you know what that meant and basically the fact that we're never going to win quote unquote win the war on drugs um you know the way that it's being fought and it's something that just really stuck with me and to have that you know right next to an essay by hunter s thompson you know for for him to share space with you know somebody that is already renowned as uh, a thought provoking artist was something that was pretty special for me yeah okay i was just you know curious i i remember you having this in college yeah uh i have looked at it i have never read it i carried um, this book around with me like a dirty missionary like if if missionaries didn't shower and smelled like weed and carried a book with the f word in it that's that's basically what it was <laughs> um there's there is stuff in there I have read like mm-hmm. I've you know I've read some of the Thompson stuff and all that but uh, again it's on the to read pile that never seems to never gets any smaller well no it never does so uh, my number two is um, it's it's the, it's called the Eye of the World it's by Robert Jordan it is the first book in a high fantasy series called The Wheel of Time. Um, it is the best fantasy book I've ever read and it's really not close. Um, Damn. the series, the series itself has highs and lows. I feel like, uh, before George R. R. Martin and his, will he finish it thing? Robert Jordan was the OG of that. Uh, this is a guy that was writing a trilogy that ended up being 14 books. Okay. And, uh, this is a guy who actually did die before he finished his uh, series. Um, he had written 11 books and he had the outline for the 12th book and uh, they knew he was dying. He, um, he had a, he had a, uh, a serious disease. It wasn't just like, I think I'm going to, you know, he, right. he, he knew. And so they, um, he had notes prepared and everything. And then, they brought in a different guy and he immediately was like, this book would be so long. They literally couldn't bind it. So they split it in three into three books and whatever. Um, they've tried to do some adaptations of it. Uh, Amazon prime is getting ready to put it out. Um, it, and I think it actually will happen, which is wild. Uh, it's got Rosamund Pike attached to it so basically it's the story of uh this guy who's gonna save the world and destroy it in the process and it's super like it's high fantasy in the way of like there's magic and there's you know um basically orcs but they're called trollocs or whatever you know like all all of your uh big tropes are pretty much accounted for but what's interesting is the ma- is the magic system and i will keep this as short as possible because i realize i am getting into the weeds but uh the magic system is interesting because it's divided in half and there are two parts to it one part for women and one part for men and the male side ha- um 
has, has been tainted. So if any man tries to use it, they eventually go insane. And based what, like thousands of years before all the men basically destroyed the world and they called it the breaking of the world. And so that's why this kid who's going to save the world is also going to destroy it. And it's him and his buddies. And it's like I said, the first book is the best one. The first three are great. The series as a whole, I think is really good. But anyway, I re I realized I got into the weeds a little bit on it, but it's super good. They are very long, but I recommend them. Yeah. I, uh, I don't have a lot on this because I was not familiar with the series, but from the sounds of it, it sounds like George RR R. Martin got a lot of credit that maybe should have went to this guy also. Or well, at least... sort of, uh, the things that like Martin, he's a lot more brutal mm -hmm. than this guy is, uh, up until, I mean, like there's a couple, but for the most part, he's, very protective of his characters to the point where they do not die. <laughs> and like that almost becomes a kind of a trope. <laughs> like you're like, okay, but it'll be fine. Like it's very scary, but he'll live. Whereas like Martin's like that guy was walking along and then he died, you know? Right. And, um, the one thing that's really uh, very cool about this series though, is uh, it's very pro women. Uh, women hold remarkable positions of power. And if you've ever been into fantasy at all, that's not a thing. No, like uh, it's, it's just not because, um, you know, everything's based off of like, you know, medieval Europe. And so it always has to be men in charge and it can't ever be anybody but white dudes. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, um, this, this book is very much the book series. The, the women there, you know, there, there's a, there's Queens and they're, this, like countries that only have queens hmm. and then like you know basically all these magic users that are only women because men go crazy and they hold remarkable levels of power which is cool especially considering yeah. like i think the first book came out in like 89 oh wow so you know like especially when you think like holy shit that's like 30 years ago or whatever that's pretty cool ahead of the curve so mm -hmm, definitely cool so moving on to my number one and looking this is the third book on my list that includes a post-apocalyptic wasteland. So you I, I may need to make an appointment. I don't know. Um, I definitely have a type, but my number one book is the gunslinger from Stephen King. And this is book one in what turned into a seven and a half book series. Um, <clears throat> regarding Roland Deschain, the kind of prototypical gunslinger, um, you know, man in a white hat that traveling across the land in pursuit of his arch nemesis, Walter. Um, and there's a ton of shit that happens in between uh, with the book series. I, it crosses over a lot of Stephen King's most popular stories uh, it's a super fun, the series itself is a super fun dive into Stephen King's work. Um, and it's done from such a different angle than people expected out of Stephen King, because it's much more of a fantasy adventure book where, but everything that he pulls over is, are from his horror books. Um, I think it's done really well. 
And this is a series that I've read twice in my life. Like I've gone through all seven books two different times and it's, it reads like a quest story of any kind, you know, whether that be the Hobbit or, you know, uh, any of these other fantasy novels, but the gunslinger itself is the one book that can stand alone. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the way it ends, it's, it's not perfect, but it is a tight enough story that if you only read that one book, you would say, all right, cool. You know, I'm happy where he was able to build on it for, you know, the second and, uh, you know, all the books after that. But, I thought it was pretty cool to be able to start such a long uh, story, you know, that the stretches over seven books and like three decades by the time he finally finished it uh, to be able to have that opening book stand alone on its own. You know, if, if you didn't want to read all seven books, you could read the gunslinger and get enjoyment out of it. Whereas oh, yeah. I can't necessarily recommend like, Hey, you should read book five, The Wolves of Kala. <laughs> you have no fucking idea what's going on. Hey, are you bored? Read the drawing of the three. It'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> Sad ass book. But yeah. And so for me, I, I thought it was special to be able to package it in a way that could be on its own, but then grew into a much bigger thing. Um, also, like I said, you know, seeing him break from his traditional horror stories. Uh, I love Stephen King. You know, my book that just missed the cut was another Stephen King book. But, you know, to see him kind of break that mold and do just a traditional Western book with, you know, some uh, fantasy attached to it was really cool. And it helped make me appreciate Stephen King as an author even more. I think one of the coolest things about the gunslinger, especially if you've read some other King, when you get to the gunslinger, it is written like the actual style of writing is so different. Yeah. Like, um, like I, I've read a lot of Stephen King too. And one thing you'd never say about, uh, Stephen King is that he's a Spartan writer that he, uh, is, uh, concise. Right. Um, and I feel like the gunslinger is actually very Spartan and very concise in a way that is super interesting because it almost doesn't feel like you're reading a Stephen King book. And I mean, and that, and that's just the, the style of writing beyond the actual story, beyond anything. Like it just, it's, it's wild. Um, the actual story is really cool and very mysterious on purpose. Like it, you know, like he's setting something up and I, I, I think the gunslinger is really good. Like you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Like it's a very good book. So I also think that uh, one of the things that made this book different from King's other books was how few penis references there were. <laughs> and I'm, I'm being completely serious yeah, right now. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, that's that's a part of his writing. Like, that's what you get when you pick up any other Stephen King book. Like, you're going to read about dicks um, and some other stuff, too. But it 
this book didn't contain a lot of like the inner monologue, like especially the yeah. inner sexual monologue that Stephen King's books, a lot of his other books do include. Um, it reads like a Clint Eastwood movie. Yep. And I, I mean that in the best way possible. Like it's, it's well, a it, fun it, Western fantasy and it just, it, it's, it hits. Well, it is. And it's very relentless. Like, yeah. like the, like the sense of movement, like, like, I mean, the like it, it's a, like the story is a quest. Like he's he's going from point, you know, point to point to point. But like the actual way the book feels is like relentless. It, it's just you're just going to keep going until you hit the end, which right. is you know again, it's why it's very different from his other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Well, then my number one it's Shogun by James uh, James Clavel. Um. I feel like some people have, especially recently, uh, FX is getting ready to put out a new uh, adaptation of Shogun. Um, and people, when they heard about it, were like, oh, man, ah, white savior, here we go again. And I mean, okay. Like, you know, whatever you, you, whatever you want to think about that. But this book fucking rules. And it is based on something that actually happened, which is what? Like, right. the, it's the story of a guy who, it's like back in like the, what, or, uh, the 1600s or something? 1600s, yeah. Yeah, it's the 1600s. And he works for the, it's not the West India, but it's basically that for England. And they are trying to get to Japan um to get to china and they crash in fucking japan and he ends up living out basically the rest of his life in japan and it it goes into the basically just the giant culture shock of that and that's interesting enough but like what ends up being the overall plot is um this war between these two warlords and what they want is one to be named Shogun. The person who's named Shogun is the protector of Japan and protects the emperor. And I, it's maybe one of the longest books I've ever read. It's so good. It's, um, it's technically part of a series, but it's standalone. Um, the series is called the Asian saga. And um there's like five books he never finished it so and and he's dead and like nobody's touched it so i wouldn't like there's two books that are worth reading but this one's completely standalone because it's like almost 200 years before anything else in mm. the, in the series so it doesn't it doesn't super connect but like there was a guy that this actually happened to and it's just it's super good i i'm selling it short because i can't really explain as well as I should, but this is another book that like I literally bought it like three different times. And this is a book that I have read probably 10 times and I will probably read it again next year. So <laughs> uh, it's just, it's super good. I'm very excited to see the new adaptation of it. They did a mini series on CBS back in like the eighties. Okay. It was okay. Yeah. But, uh, this is another one that I haven't read, but I did some research on it and you're right. First, first reaction, I was kind of like, okay, this is a, a white savior story. 
and it made me question everything I know about you. Um, mm-hmm. But as, as I researched it further and saw the reviews coming in and some explanation about the story, this is not the last samurai. Like this no. is not, this is not, you know, Tom Cruise coming in and, you know, fixing Japan. Um, so yeah, like it, from everything I've researched, it looks like there is a ton of stuff to dive into here that appears to be pretty accurate too. like the way it's described mm-hmm. the way, I mean, he's historically accurate in the way he sets the, the setting. So, yep. Well, it's, it's funny because it's, it as you start reading it, like, you feel like, oh, it's setting itself up to be this white savior thing. But it's it's like that, except it's just completely reversed. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, just as an example, uh, right at the beginning of the story, like, he's an English pilot in the 1600s. He's disgusting. Okay? Like, they do not believe in the level of cleanliness, and they don't, you know, the, the level of medicine and everything was very very primitive especially compared to japan so um they're trying to bring this guy up because because he's a pilot and he has useful knowledge that they want they they want to learn how to sail in the way that the english have learned how to sail and he's just like i can't take a bath i'll you know like i'll get diseases and it's just like you're such an idiot Holy shit. And like the whole book is kind of like that to the point where you're like, he's the guy you're supposed to be rooting for, but then, and he's got all these plans and stuff and he has no idea how played he's being like, it's, it's, it's a brilliant book. And that's why like when people like, especially when this last thing was announced and people were like, Oh, it's a white state. I was just like, it's not right. Pay attention. Yeah. So also, the, the English season their bodies more than they ever season their food. Oh, <laughs> so. But anyway, that's that's the list, kids. Yeah, uh, we had a lot of fun putting those together and it sparked some other ideas for us that will be coming in the future. So keep your ears peeled for those. Um, also. You heard earlier in the episode, it's March 2020. So I am going to say this. I hope I don't have to repeat it. Wash your goddamn hands. Mm-hmm. So yeah. please, uh, I, I'm only going to tell you this once. Wash your goddamn hands. It's true. All right. That's it, guys. Yep. We'll see you soon. <laughs> All right. Take care.